You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to episode 166 of the Freedom Pact podcast. This show is for you if you value health, wealth, and wisdom. Today on the show, I will be joined by Rich Divini. Rich is a retired U.S. Navy commander and founder of the SEAL Mind Gym. You may remember our episode with General Stanley McChrystal. Well, Rich served alongside General McChrystal, so this should be a fabulous episode today. Uh, Rich has just released his latest book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of optimal performance. So let's kick this off today. Rich, welcome to the show. How do you best conceptualize the difference between optimal performance and peak performance? What a, what a great way to start because it really, it's the foundation of all of it really. And, and the idea is that um, peak is simply an apex. Everybody's kind of striving for peak performance all the time, but, but we have to understand that peak is simply an apex from which you can only come down. And um, peak has to often be prepared for and scheduled and planned. Um, so the, the professional athlete, for example, can plan their entire week to peak for a certain moment for that sporting event, right? Um, and so, so there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, the business person can plan to peak when they're giving a presentation, but when people would come to me and ask me about SEALs, uh, military special operations, uh, they would often assume that we were all peak performers and I would disagree with them. And I'd say, no, we're actually optimal performers. Optimal is a little bit different. Optimal is how can I do the very best I can in the moment, right? Whatever, whatever the best might look like. And so sometimes the best looks like our peak. It looks like flow states and, and, uh, and everything's clicking and everything's going well. But sometimes the best we can do in the moment is we're just grinding it out. We're just taking step by step. We're, and it's cold and it's dirty and it's dark and it's muddy and it's, it's hard, right? Uh, but that's still the best we can do. And that's still optimal performance. And so optimal performance speaks to just much more of a realistic, I think, goal because it allows for modulation. You know, it allows for you to an individual to go to peak when they need to and when they can, but also you know, when they're, when it's tough and things are gritty and, and, you know, you don't know what's going on, um, you're doing the best you can. That's, that's, that's the best you can. That's optimal. So that's the, that's the difference. I think it's a better goal to strive for. I would love to know as far as attributes go, what role do attributes play in our life? A, an enormous role. Um, and this is what I kind of figured out when I was, uh, running, uh, my, you know, kind of a, a specialized SEAL training and assessment course was that we were, um, we were often looking at very visible things that weren't telling us the real story. And, um, and so this is, the, so I really kind of found the difference. I had to kind of articulate the difference between attributes and skills. And so just to kind of lay it out for everybody, uh, skills are not inherent to our nature where none of us are born with the ability to throw a ball or, or ride a bike or drive a car. We have to be taught those things. We can be, we can be taught them. We can sit down and learn them. Um, they also direct our behavior in known situations. So here's how and when to drive a car or here, here's how and when to ride a bike. Um, and then because they're kind of tangible like that 
and they're visible, they're very easy to see, assess, and measure, and test. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. The problem with skills is that skills don't tell us how we're going to show up in uncertainty, challenge, and stress in any in, in unknown environments because you can't. It's very difficult to apply a known skill to an unknown environment. This is where attributes come in. Attributes are, on the other hand, uh, inherent to our nature. We're, all of us are born with levels of adaptability and patience and uh, situational awareness, right? We see this in small children. Of course, they develop over time based on uh, nature and nurture, um, but you can see it in small kids. Um, they also inform our behavior rather than direct it, right? So, so for example, my son's level of adaptability and perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning how to ride a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so, right? So, so they inform our behavior. And then because they're hidden in the background, um, they're very hard. They're not so visible. They're very hard to see, assess, measure, and test. It's hard to uh, sit down across someone and measure or figure out how patient they are or how adaptable they are, right? Um, attributes come to the fore. They're the most visible and visceral uh, during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress. And so this is why SEAL training for me was such a great laboratory inside of which we could see this because, you know, I always joke, you know, I, when, when you go through basic SEAL training, you spend hundreds of hours carrying heavy boats on your head. You spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and running around with those things on your shoulder, right? Through my course of you know more than 20 years in the in the SEAL teams, I conducted hundreds of combat missions and I conducted thousands of training evolutions. Never on one of them did I carry a boat on my head or a telephone pole on my shoulder. Right. So so what they were doing to us in SEAL training when they did made us do those things, they weren't training us to be Navy SEALs. What they were doing is they were putting us in these situations, these environments, to tease out these hidden attributes to see if he if we had what it took. To do the mm. job and so so we kind of kind of make this all kind of uh relatable is that 2020 for all of us was our own version of seal training <laughs> right there's only two there are two big differences um, none of us volunteered to be there and <laughs> and none of us had the option to quit um, but we were all thrown into stress uncertainty and challenge so all of us actually got a crash course whether it was conscious or unconscious in these attributes because they all kind of came to the fore and that's such a great point because in the navy seals to get out of hell week all someone would have to do is to ring the bell you know and they can get out of it but nobody could ring the bell on 2020. Um, it's also a great reminder of a concept we've discussed on the show hormesis which just means what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and 2020 has certainly built that resilience for a lot of us um, so as far as attributes and skills in your model I'm really curious because if we're imagining, say, an iceberg, then I sort of imagine attributes being uh, the ice under the surface with skills as sort of uh, the iceberg on the tip, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Is that a kind of fair assessment of sort of what you are proposing? In terms of the visibility, it's a very fair assessment. Um, and again, both are both are required, right? You you have to have skills. I mean, skills are of importance. Um, but when we when we apply it a skill, um, the way the way we apply it, the way we show up to it, the way we're handling all of this external stuff, our internal our internal makeup is driven by these attributes, right? So um, so that's really the test, um, and really kind of the back of the envelope um, test. Because there could, you know, between attributes and skills, because they they get conflated, all you know, often, is can it be taught or can I teach it? You know, 
Um, so for example, if you, Joe, wanted to, if you felt you were an impatient person and you wanted to be more patient, I could not sit down and give you a class on patience, right? That's something that has to be self-directed um, versus if you said, hey, Rich, I, don't, I want to shoot a gun better, right? I could certainly give you a class on how to shoot a gun better. That's a skill, right? So, so attributes can be developed. It just has to take, it takes self-motivation, self-direction, and then it takes a willingness to step into discomfort um, and uncertainty to then test that attribute. You would have to, for example, place yourself into environments that tested your patience and it would be difficult and uncomfortable, but that's how you do it. I love it, man. I love it. I think that a lot of people kind of think that younger generations are getting soft. Um, I would love to get your thoughts on this. And, you know, first of all, do you see this? And if so, which attribute or attributes do you think that the younger generations are missing the most? It's a great question and it's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say the the easy answer is there's no there's no um, generational stamp on any of these things. It's a very human thing. It's like judging um, hair color, right? We all, every one of us actually has all of these attributes inside of us. The difference between each of us are the levels to which we have each, right? So for example, um, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest, um, you may rate yourself, you, you may be a level four of adaptability, for example. In other words, it might, it, when, when the environment changes around you without your control, it might take you a little longer to adapt. It might be more difficult. Whereas I might be a level eight, you know, whereas, hey, with the environment changes, I roll with it, I'm good, right? And, and there's no judgment there. It's really how you show up. And I think the, the interesting thing for me was, um, you know, in terms of human performance and human behavior and self-improvement, the very first step in any self-improvement process is to understand your own engine, you know, and, and understanding where you, where you fall on these attributes is one of the first very basic steps into understanding your own engine and how you can show up and how you do show up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to take a detour away from attributes as there is another part of your book, which I would love to discuss. Um, in the book, you talk about a situation with a parachute malfunction, which you had to deal with. Could you talk about the parachute malfunction, what you learn from it, and what lessons we can apply going forward? So in the book, I describe, uh, I, use, I use parachute malfunction and, and one that I had um, in, in terms of why attributes matter in, in, with behavior. When you, when you, when you skydive, um, you, there are several things you have to learn when you're skydiving, especially in the military. The first, and, and actually skydiving in general, the first is how to properly exit the aircraft, right? Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. The very first is getting your gear on properly, right? You have, <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. you have to get your parachute on properly and clip it in the right places. Now, in the military sense, that means you're loading up uh, with other stuff, too. It's not just your parachute. You're, you're carrying um, your weapon. You're carrying ammunition. You're carrying a bunch of stuff, maybe, a, maybe even a, a rucksack or a backpack. And it's all kind of tied onto you in a way that's very tight to your body. Because again, you're going to be going 120 miles an hour in the in the in the air. And if your if your gear is is misplaced or loose or or otherwise sticking out in certain ways, that affects your aerodynamics while you're falling, which could put you into spins or in really uncomfortable situations. So so the first thing you have to know is 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 you know putting on your gear. Then you have to understand you know how to exit the aircraft properly. Um, you exit in a certain way so you're flying flat and all that stuff and you pull uh and you pull your parachute and you're you're now floating those are all skills that you can learn um when it comes to however something going wrong okay um 
there's, you know, in that, in those moments where you're, depending on what altitude you're at, you have literally between maybe 30 seconds and five seconds to figure it out. Um, there is, I talk about there being five steps when you're kind of going through a power parachute malfunction. And out of those five steps, only one of those steps actually is a skill. Okay. The first step is actually figuring out what's going wrong. And this is an attribute called situational awareness. Can I, can I understand, can I, am I taking in enough about my environment to figure out what's actually going wrong in this moment? What's my position in the air? What's happening with the parachute? You know, that's, that's number one. Then it's going to be an attribute called decisiveness and compartmentalization. Some of these are combined. You know, so out of everything I just figured out and, and the information I just took in, what is my priority in this moment to do about the problem? Okay. And make it, and then you have to make a decision, right? You have to make a decision to do that and then do it. Okay. Once you make that decision, then you do that. That's the skill. Okay. Cause you train in how to, how to, um, how to recover from various malfunctions, right? That's the skill part, do the thing, okay? But once that is done, once that thing is done, now you go back to attributes because now you have to reassess with your situational awareness. You have to rapidly learn, did that work? Did that not work? And then reapply a new solution if it didn't, you know? So so what I taught, the, the way I describe the parachute malfunction in the book is that in these environments when things go wrong, okay? And you, and, and, and in, in the immediacy of the moment, you have to figure out the environment first. You're leaning on attributes because, again, you can't you, if you you can't apply a known skill to an unknown environment. So in, even in the parachute malfunction, which is a very compressed um, timeline, <laughs> you, you are you are having to figure it out, understand it, prioritize, make a decision, and then do. And then once done, quickly, rapidly reassess and learn. Um, and so out of those steps, only one of them is skill. We can we can take that timeline and expand it out to even COVID, right? And we, we, where we where where we didn't understand the environment, we woke up when we were in quarantine, we didn't know a lot, and we had to begin to figure it out. You know, certainly not the 15 seconds you might have on a skydive, but but still applicable, where we were leaning more on attributes than we were skills. Man, it is a mind blowing story. And I have to say, I'm very interested in the psychology of someone that chooses a service based career, such as going into the SEALs. Obviously, just from what you said, but there, it is a very high, high risk job. The chances of death are always there. And I'm very curious about your attitude towards death. So how did you think about choosing a career with the possibility that you could die actually doing it? Like, what was your attitude towards death? I think I think I could say certainly personally, and I, I would imagine most of my teammates would agree, is that we didn't think about it um, because because again, you, there's a there's a concept I truly believe in, and I think it's more of a human concept, is that you attract what you focus on, and um, and when you're in that line of work, you're not thinking about not surviving. You're thinking about how to how to do this so that I do survive, and that's the human nature anyway. And so the human the human experience, human nature drives you to this idea of survival. And how can we effectively get this job done without dying? <laughs> yeah, that's the key. That, that's where everybody wins, right? So, um, um, and so I think what um, I think what you'll find most guys will tell you, and gals who are in these environments, or, or who who um, periodically or consistently put themselves in these environments, is you you operate with a very keen sense of what you need to do. Okay, what the plan is. 
Um, you meet, you understand those things that could go wrong. And so if those things go wrong, then you can do this, this, or this, but then you have a confidence and an, and an ability to, if things go really sideways and you don't, and you, and you don't, you can't pre-predict a solution. So you can't plan ahead. You, you're okay. You'll figure it out. You know, you'll figure it out in the moment. And this is where you, you, I think gain true confidence is this, is this ability to operate effectively in uncertainty, um, and the unknown. And that's why attributes are so important in that environment. And what we have to understand about courage and fear is that, first of all, fear cannot, or excuse me, courage cannot exist without fear. And, and, and we've, we've heard a lot of famous people say this. We've heard a lot of really wise people say this. This is also backed by neuroscience, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and so Andrew Huberman, who we both talked about, the yeah. uh, neuroscience out of Stanford, who's been one of your guests, he and I have worked together now for, for three or four years. Um, he talks about this, and we've talked about this a lot, and he's in the book. Um, but what happens when your when your brain begins to tip into fear is that it's 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 given a choice. It's given a choice either to fight, which is really not so much put your dukes up and, and hit things. It's really just step into the fear or flight, retreat. Okay, retreat away from the fear. The freeze response, which, which we've all heard of, is it, it exists, but it's not really. It's more of an oscillation between the two. It's it's basically you deciding whether or not you're going to fight or or flight. Okay. Flight, yeah. Um, Whichever one you choose, uh, flight or fight, um, it's gonna it's gonna kick off a certain a, a circuit in your brain, and they're different circuits, right? As soon as you choose to, for example, step into your fear, okay, fight, that's the courage switch. There's a switch that clicks in your brain that says, okay, I'm stepping into this, and then we get a reward. We get a reward of dopamine. We get a dopamine reward when we do that. Dopamine, we know, very powerful neurotransmitter, tells us, hey, this feels really good. It's one of the keys, uh, the key substances in addiction. This is why we keep on doing these things. Um, but, but this is a human, it's a human neurotransmitter. So, so when we step into our fear, we get that dopamine hit. Um, so that's number one. First of all, number one is we are designed to be afraid. We're designed to stress. We're designed to feel agitated. So in other words, the human experience is such that you know, when things are bad, like for example, if you're hungry, your body's going to feel agitated. And that's, that's saying, Hey, go get food. When you're lonely, your body's agitated, it says go find companionship. Okay. So, so stress and, and fear, stress and stress is not a bad thing because it's agitation telling us to get up and move. Fear is not a bad thing because it's allowing us to assess risk because sometimes it's not a good idea to step into our fear. Sometimes it's a good idea to run away from that bear, right? You shouldn't fight a bear, run away from it. Right? So that's number one. In terms of what fear actually is, and uh, is that it's, it, it is, is really kind of interesting because fear actually breaks down to, to uh, the combination of two different things, okay? The combination of anxiety plus uncertainty, okay? You can have either one without the other and not have fear, okay? So for example, you can be anxious but not uncertain. This might be the business person who has to give a presentation next week in, in front of the boss anxious about it, nervous about it, right? Knows exactly when it's going to be, knows exactly what they're going to present. You know, so there's no fear there. There's just anxiety. Okay. You can have uncertainty without anxiety. Well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm not, I'm not anxious about it. I'm excited about it. Right. That's so a great example. Yeah. yeah as, as soon as you combine the two, that's when the fear starts to kick in. That's when you're, that's when we start heading into that autonomic response and the fight or flight. Your question is a long-winded answer to your question is how can we uh, detract from that? How can we come off of that? Well, the way we come off of that is either take, is basically take control of either one of those or both variables, right? Anxiety is, is internal, okay? That's all physiological response, okay? You can take control of your anxiety through technique, techniques such as breathing. 
Uh, there are visual techniques that allow you to come off of a sympathetic response into a more parasympathetic. So you can actually take control of your physiology to manage anxiety through those uh, through those um, tools, right? Breathing, visual tools. You could use visualization tools where you're actively visualizing something that's calming and peaceful. You, people use music to make them feel better. Humor is a great one. Okay, mm. so all these all these tools you can use to come down off of anxiety. Basically, buy down anxiety. If we want to buy down uncertainty, we have to first recognize uncertainty is external, right? Uncertainty is I don't understand the environment that's being presented to me, right? So, so that response has to be more focused on how do I how do I appropriately begin to chunk my environment <clears throat> in a way that I can understand? And the first question someone can ask themselves or you if you're in this situation is, hey, what can I control? Or what do I know? Okay, out of all this that's going on, what do I know? What can I control? As soon as you begin to ask yourself those questions, you begin to automatically um, uh, take away or, or de-emphasize those things that you can't control and oftentimes those things that you're imagining anyway. You're, and I think, what is that? Uh, there's, a, there's an acronym for fear, um, false appearance. Um, what is it? False. Uh, I can't remember, but it's false appearance of something <laughs> real. Anyway, but, you know, but it's, it's basically a perception. It's our perception of reality. Okay. Mm. Oh, false. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Either. I don't know. Either. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, and, um, and so basically it's our perception of reality. So if we begin to act proactively, um, start to perceive our reality and, and, and focus on, Hey, this is what I can control. And that basically takes uncertainty and puts it Put, and buys it down because now you're saying out of all this uncertainty, I'm going to control this. I'm going to move towards this. This, by the way, is exactly how Navy SEALs or anybody in combat who are successful does it, right? When combat is happening and there's all this stuff going on, okay, what we don't do is get overwhelmed by all this stuff, right? We immediately begin to focus on, okay, what is the what in this moment do I need to focus on? You focus on that and you move towards it, you get that done. And then as soon as that's done, you focus on the next moment. And it's kind of this kind of taking step by step, buying down this uncertainty until until hopefully eventually you move through it. But we can do this in our regular lives as well. You mentioned breathing and in the book, you mentioned Andrew Huberman, the fantastic professor from Stanford. He's been on the show. We had a great episode with Andrew. Um, when Andrew was on, he said that we shouldn't think our way out of stress. We should breathe our way out of stress. Um, I know that Huberman has done some work with the seals. So are there any particular breathing exercise that you use to be able to best stay calm during an anxious situation? So it's going to be subjective for everybody. However, um, holistically, from a neuroscientist, uh, neuroscience standpoint, I'm sure Andrew uh, talked about this and he articulates it way better than I do. Um, when our, when our, systems, our systems begin to feel stressed, um, when, when we begin to build up CO2, you know, uh, in our, in our, in our bodies. Right. So, so, uh, so, so in other words, for example, what's interesting about, about like when you breath hold and you go underwater, um, and you start feeling like you need air, it's actually the, the feeling that you're getting is not your body saying, I need oxygen. The feeling you're getting is your body saying, I have too much CO2 in me. Right. Oh. So, uh, carbon dioxide. Um, and so, and so one of the ways that they figured out, uh, through all the experts to, to begin to de-stress and come into more of a parasympathetic response is to blow out CO2. So one of the one of the breathing techniques that you can do is called CO2 blowout breathing. So for example, if we if you and I were to take a deep breath in for four seconds, um, and then we might hold for four seconds, 
but on the exhale, we're going to blow out for eight seconds. And then on the bottom, we're going to hold for eight seconds, right? That's basically what's happening is we're blowing out our CO2 and we're, we're basically trying to get that out of our system to repopulate our, our system with oxygen and purge our system from CO2. So that's one of the kind of the neurological, physiological ways that we can affect that um, sympathetic parasympathetic relationship. So I would love to just talk more generally and let's switch gears and take the conversation to 30,000 feet. In the book, you break leadership down into empathy, selflessness, authenticity, accountability, and decisiveness. If we're looking at leadership, what does it take to be a great leader? I love the question and I love the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> because I think leadership is largely misunderstood. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and, and one of the reasons why I believe it's misunderstood is because people conflate being in charge with being a leader um, because they're not the same thing. One's, one's a noun and one's a verb, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, and so what, one of the things I have discovered as I've left the military and kind of been in the leadership space is leadership is not a position, it's a behavior. Okay. Um, and we don't get to call ourselves leader. We can't self-designate. It's like calling yourself funny or handsome. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's other, other people decide whether or not you're a leader, right? Um, now you can certainly be in charge, right? And I can say, hey, I'm in charge based on position, based on hierarchy, based on whatever rank in the military, I can say I'm in charge and there's no dispute about that. But whether or not you're a leader depends on how many people consider you a leader and how many people actually follow you. Um, now, this is somewhat intuitive because we've all seen organizations or businesses, some of your listeners might be in organizations or businesses where the, hierarch the, the hierarchical person in charge is fine, but they'd much rather, there's someone who's not even on the hierarchical chain in the office who they always go to because that's the person who always behaves in a way that leads, right? They, 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 have, they execute those behaviors. So I, no, I'm going to go to that person. That person's my go-to person because that person they believe is a leader. They'd follow that person to hell and back, right? And it doesn't have to be the person who's at the hierarchical top of the food chain, right? So, so it's a behavior, not a position. How you behave allows people to make a decision to call you leader. And these five attributes I talk about are attributes that, are, that lead to behaviors that generally um, uh, allow people to call, call others leaders. And, um, and what's interesting is I've done leadership work at, since I got out of the military in 2017. And one of the things we've done constantly to thousands of audiences, uh, in the U S and the UK, all over the world, really, we ask them, what do great leaders do? Okay. We just ask them that question. And then we basically just get answers, you know, words, and we usually put them on a chart and we just chart it out. And every time we make that list, okay. Every time these five things show up. Okay. Well, I mean, great leaders are empathetic. Great leaders are accountable. Great leaders are decisive. Great leaders are selfless. Great leaders, you know, um, you know, have author are authentic, right? We get it every time. It doesn't matter where we are on the planet. It doesn't matter what generation we're talking to, whether it's baby boomers or millennials or Gen X, whatever it is, the answers are always the same. So these behaviors are fairly, um, uh, uh, you know, um, common, whether they're completely common, you know, and, and um, ubiquitous in terms of behaviors of leadership. So that's why I kind of focused on those five. I love the idea that we don't need to necessarily be in a position of power to be a leader. We can lead for our wives, for our children, for our community, for our colleagues. It's a brilliant idea. Um, as far as empathy goes, I completely agree that empathy can be such a powerful tool. We can really weaponize empathy. 
Um, how can we show others that we empathize with them? And more generally, how can we show other people that we really care about them? Empathy is, um, and so this is why empathy is an attribute, because some people are just more empathetic than others. You know, my mm -hmm. wife, for example, she's a highly empathetic individual. She's always been that way. And I've learned from her because I was not that, you know, I was, I was less empathetic. I've worked on my empathy. And I think, um, I think, you know, empathy, again, we have to understand is not, it's more than just knowing how someone feels. It's feeling how someone feels. And that can be a little bit difficult, especially when we're trying to empathize with someone who we maybe have no commonalities with or even disagree with vehemently, right? I mean, how do we actually do that? Um, my process has and my experience has been that the seeds of empathy lie in two things. Uh, first is curiosity and the second is introspection. Um, as soon as we can decide to be curious and say, hey, I, I really want to want to try to see it from that perspective, see it from that person's point of view, um, that immediately opens up doorways, both, you know, really in our mind, right? Um, and then I believe introspection is, is one of those elements, you know, because we're so inundated nowadays with with the opinions of others, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and um, and so much so that we sometimes forget to formulate opinions for ourselves and, and forget to kind of turn inward and examine ourselves and ask ourselves some of these questions. Um, so I think I think the, the process of of kind of turning inward on oneself and then being curious about another allows certainly has allowed me to say, OK, if I were in that position, and I began to understand the variables that that person, for example, might be might be living to the extent that I can. Right. Um, could I begin to understand and feel the way they feel? And oftentimes that answer is yes. Um, sometimes it's very, very difficult. And sometimes and I would offer maybe sometimes it's impossible because because how do you actually jump into the perspective of someone who's completely different than you? But I think even just engaging the process is a is an attempt at empathy which will be valuable for all of us and certainly if you're in charge of people um it could be you know it, it it's a lot easier what's interesting joe is that a lot of people who are in charge of other people um were once in the position of the people they're in charge of right yet they forget sometimes how it felt to be down there parenting is a perfect perfect example like i my, my boys are teenagers now and sometimes I have to really remember as I'm as I'm speaking with them and, and looking at them and dealing with them. Hey, what did I feel like when I was a teen? You know, how did I feel? And that's how you empathize. You say, hey, hey just look back. I mean, and, and, and feel what you felt and try to empathize that way. So that's another, I think, trick. Yeah, I love that you talk about empathy. What would you say are the major benefits of being empathetic? Why is empathy so powerful? I believe it's powerful because it shows people that you care about them. You know, um, it shows people that you have deep concern and care. If, 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 uh, if anybody, but cer certainly a leader, takes the time to understand and feel with another human being, that's a very, very powerful chemical bond that's being created. And, and, you, and we, could, we could probably name, we probably get the neuroscientists in here and name the, the, the chemicals that are being expressed. But, <laughs> but we all know this. Um, we, we know this, again, intuitively, that if... Um, if if we're sitting down with someone and that that person we're sitting down with and talking to is making a very very deliberate effort to feel how we feel we immediately feel endeared to that person we really do um we feel like this this person gets me they really do um and um and that's a powerful leadership quality so so it's a it's a very bonding chemical um or it's a very bonding attribute 
And, um, and I think it also just opens perspective, you know, uh, you know, for, for the person who's striving to be empathetic. I love it, man. Another topic which we are extremely interested on this show is decision making. Whether we like it or not, I guess we are always making decisions, right? The quality of our lives is directly proportionate to the quality of the decisions that we make. The ramifications of me, a 25-year-old guy from Wales making a bad decision, they seem much smaller than you making a bad decision as the commander of the Navy SEALs. What are some of the best decision-making tips that you've used that you could tell us about? So the, the attribute of decisiveness in leadership speaks to this ability to, uh, to efficiently and effectively make decisions, okay? And by efficiently, we mean with some, some essence of speed. Um, and effectively, we mean with some essence of understanding of the variables involved, okay? The, but, but again, um, decisiveness implies that there's not a protracted process here, right? Um, and, and so as a decision maker, um, and I, I think as a leader, and again, again, certainly there are some decisions that can be protracted. I mean, and, and in those cases, I think the way I would make those decisions when time was not of the essence, and we had some, some of it to, to spend, I would bring people in. I'd get opinions, I'd get thoughts, I'd get perspectives. I think that's always a very valuable tool that any leader has to, to, to their, at their disposal to make effective decisions should they have some time to do that. However, um, we all can think of people in our lives who we, we consider leaders. And one of the reasons why we consider those people leaders is because they are able to effectively and efficiently make decisions somewhat unilaterally. Um, and they do it in a very efficient way. And so what that means is, are you able to take in the information you need to about a situation, issue, or problem, um, not get overboard on what's, what too much information is. There's, there's, a, there's a rule we always had in the, in the, in the SEAL teams, it's like the 80-20 rule, you know, which means, hey, we're gonna, we're, if we can collect about 80% of the information, we're good, okay, then we'll go. Sometimes though, we couldn't even collect 80. You know, it was up to us whether or not we had enough. If maybe 50 was enough in the case, you know, maybe, you know, depending on the urgency or the importance, maybe, you know, 45 or 40% of the information is enough. Um, and then, but, but just assume 80, we could try to get to 80 as much as we could. Um, and then just to know that, hey, there's, there's 20% of stuff that you're just not going to know. Okay. You, you just have to, you have to be, you have to be okay making a decision without that knowledge. Okay. So that's what decision makers do. Um, and that's what decisiveness speaks to. However, decisiveness, especially, well, any, I think anybody, but certainly in the leadership capacity has to be buttressed by accountability. Okay, because uh, if you're not accountable, if you're not take, if you're not holding yourself accountable for that decision, you're you're, you're not you're 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 going to be you're going to look like a fraud, right? So, and again, when you make that decision, there's a difference between a decision that's um, final and a decision that's permanent. Okay, the decisive leader makes a final decision. Okay, but the accountable leader also says, "Hey, that's a decision that's final," which means we're going to move out on this the way we the way I've decided. But it's not permanent, right? We're gonna, we're gonna, as we, as we move out of this, as we, as we see and adjust and, and see how this decision is actually manifesting, um, we may change, you know, and and we may adapt because it might not have been the best decision. We may have to change along the way. So, so decisiveness has to be um, buttressed with this idea of accountability, and I would offer adaptability as well. What are some other tips for becoming more um, adaptable? 
So adaptability, we all have to recognize is this idea that the environment is is going to change around us without our control. I mean, and and it's up to us uh, as to whether or not we want to evolve or go extinct, right? So I use the analogy of the of the frog versus the dinosaur in the book, right? And the, you know, again, we all know dinosaurs could not adapt, and um, and it wasn't their fault; they just couldn't, um, and they they went extinct, right? Well, the frog has lived through about five different extinction level events, right? Because the frog is designed to adapt to its environment and has done um, for you know three hundred million years, um, and so and as and humans as humans were designed to adapt as well, um, because that's just how we are. We could be more proactive about the process just by by lodging some some key questions into our conscious mind. I think one of the key questions I always, always would ask myself and continue to do if I find myself having a difficult time adapting are things like, "What's the worst that could happen?" You know, if I just roll with it. Um, but I also I don't I don't just stop there. It's like, what are some of the best things that could happen? You don't you don't want to stop with the worst, right? You want to you want to say, "What's the what are some of the worst things? What are the, some of the best things?" The the some people might might um raise an eyebrow to to asking what are the worst things that are happened because it might seem a little negative but the problem the, the the value of sometimes asking that question if you ask it honestly and you give yourself honest answers is that you actually can sift through some of the bs because your brain comes up with some crazy ideas of what what the worst things can happen and so sometimes <laughs> i've asked myself that question hey what's the worst thing that happened and some of the immediate answers i get it's like <laughs> that is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever, you know, why am I even thinking that? It's, 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 it allows for a dismissal process, right? So asking the question can allow for a dismissal process that can actually be valuable. On the other side, it can also allow for a thought process that can more appropriately assess risk uh, that you may have not, you may have uh, otherwise not seen, right? So asking the question, what's the worst that could happen? But then say, okay, what are, what are some of the best things that could happen if I roll with this or when I roll with this? Um, and then and then really opening the aperture to that. Um, and then of course, there's, there's the the default is to recognize in, you know recognize in life that I don't think I could be wrong on this. We'd have to ask the scientists. But but nothing nothing in in this universe um, doesn't change over time, right? I mean, in other words, in other words, I don't think we've discovered anything in the universe that stays the same over time. Everything changes over time. Um, so it goes with us and so it goes with our lives and so it goes with our environment. So if we understand that, hey, it doesn't matter, no matter what you think, things are going to change, right? So you can either be the dinosaur or the frog. If you choose to be the frog, then be proactive in being the frog and figure out ways to adapt. Definitely. And I feel like the last 12 months has really pushed us all. I feel like right now people are suffering. Um, people are suffering psychologically from withdrawn freedoms. People are anxious about health, about the economy. I feel like there's a level of irritability that we've seen. And, and you see it kind of from the real public unrest, which we've seen in the recent months. How do you think about resilience and what are the best ways to create it? Resilience uh, is, well, quite basically, resilience is, um, can you, when you get knocked off of baseline, so we all run with kind of a baseline level, yeah. right? Um, when you get knocked off baseline, baseline level would be defined as a hey, normal, happy, healthy, everything's good, nothing's too, nothing's too great, nothing's bad. It's just, I'm, I'm steady, I'm even. Um, all of us get knocked off baseline in one way or another. Okay. It could be a pandemic. It could be a job loss. It could be an injury. It could be, you know, financial burden, whatever, um, you know, could be a divorce. 
when do you get knocked off baseline? Um, how efficiently and, and effectively and rapidly can you get back to that baseline? Can you recover? Okay, uh, that's resiliency kind of defined. Um, now, uh, the idea behind resiliency is an important one. And some of the ways that we can do that are to what I call proactively reflect. And I also, I kind of nickname this honor our antagonists, right? Um, our lives are all sine waves. It's, it's a curve, it's ups and downs, right? That's, that's what life is. It's just a series of ups and downs. In fact, all of us want it that way. You know, we, we, we oftentimes strive to make our lives as flat as possible, or we kind of hope that our lives just always go up, right? But I'll, <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll, I'll offer this, anybody who loves roller coasters, right? How many people who love a roller coaster would want to get a, on a roller coaster that always goes up, right? It, it wouldn't be any fun, right? So, so part of the juice and spice of life it are the ups and downs, right? When we actually go in these, in these troughs, uh, one of the best ways to enact resilience is to actually effectively reflect. Well, first of all, trying to make sometimes deliberately get back to baseline and just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to move on. All right. Now, one of the ways we can do that is a, 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 one of my favorite, uh, one of my best CEOs and favorite CEOs used to coach us on what was something his grandfather taught him, which was called the two minute rule. Okay. And this rule went like this, whenever anything bad happens, okay. And you're, you know, whatever that is, you have two minutes to wallow, to, you know, you know, moan, to feel sorry for yourself, whatever it is. All right. You have two minutes to kick the dirt. Um, and, uh, after that 120 seconds, you, you, you get moving again. You just, you get back to baseline and keep moving. Now that also applies when something great happens. Okay. Something great happens. You get that promotion, you get that raise, you win the lottery, whatever. Um, 120 seconds, pat yourself on the back, rest on your laurels, feel great about yourself, whatever it is, but then get back to baseline and start and, say, and just get back to work basically. Yeah. So this is a, it's kind of a practical way, at least in in normal life that you can actually start practicing resilience. Obviously there's some lows that are pretty darn low and you need more than two minutes to recover from. And there's some highs that are really high and you might wanna celebrate for a little longer than two minutes, right? But, um, but that's kind of a practical way to get back to baseline. And then in that kind of journey back to baseline, it takes some reflection. So honoring our antagonists means, hey, how can I, how can I proactively ask some better questions about what went on in, 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 a, in an empowering way. So what are some of the things that I learned during this year of 2020 and COVID? How am I better because of this, uh, because of this pandemic, because of everything that's happened, right? Um, how have I grown? Um, what, are, what are the things that I've done that I can now take and excel in 2021? These are, these are questions that allow someone to proactively look at a bad situation, get back to baseline and be resilient more often, more rapidly. I love it, man. I love it. I've got a hypothetical question for you. If over the last 12 months, the Navy SEALs were in charge of the country during COVID-19, and they were giving advice to people based on how to get through it and how more generally just to survive tough times, what advice would the SEALs be giving to people? First of all, I hope that never happens. But, <laughs> and, and that's that's I say. Navy SEALs are great, great people. I, I'm proud to have been one. But you know, there's a balance that's required. The Navy SEAL, the Navy SEAL mindset is certainly one of a warrior mindset, and 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 great for specifics. However, it's a great question. I would say that some of the things that I I think that I certainly would say, and, and probably a lot of my friends would agree with, is number one. Okay, what can you control about this right now? All right, focus on that. All right, the, all the other stuff. I mean, we don't. Navy SEALs don't waste their time with worry. Warriors, worry is a waste of time because worry is just a projection of what you think is going to happen. Okay, there's nothing you can do 
about those things that we worry about in the moment, all right? So we don't do it, right? We just say, I'm gonna focus on what I need to focus on, all right? The other thing is, is try to distill the, the, the um, cogent, tangible, and real information from the false stuff, right? Um, because again, when you're in environments such as combat, you don't have time to waste with information that's meaningless or false. Okay, and so that takes the diligence. It takes a it takes a um, a deliberate effort to say, hey, is this information that's coming to me um, real? Is it is it backed? Is it is it based on something and something I can I can latch onto? It? Because if it's not, it's not going to help you. This I think is one of the biggest problems with what we've seen with the coronavirus, certainly in the U.S. Uh, is that we've seen information coming from both sides uh, that is completely untrustable, mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. and 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 contradictory, and and we've seen both sides contradict themselves quite a bit, um, and so and so what's happened is people don't know who to trust, people don't know what to trust. Um, there are ways that you can kind of dig through that if you are more diligent about um, researching um, down lanes that you typically wouldn't go down. I mean, I think it's, it's a common, it's common knowledge. I'm sure it's the same way um, there, but uh, that they, the, the, a lot of the bigger U.S. news agencies, they have agendas, right? And, and if you choose that, if you choose that one news agency over another, you're going to be sucked down that rabbit hole and, and that kind of porthole of, of opinion that, um, that is aligned with that agenda or the other agenda. I think it's really imperative that people decide to step away from that and say, okay, I see both, you know, portholes of information. I got it, right? What other things can I discover for myself and think about so I can actually get to, you know, the truth? And I think that's. I think there's a, there's a, there's an element of of very low if zero drama in the Navy SEAL kind of way of thinking because drama doesn't do anything for us, <laughs> you know. Yes. And so it's like stop. You know, we're not going to emote about this in ways that don't that aren't powerful or valuable. We're not going to guess. We're not going to, you know. We're not going to, uh, you know, just kind of give up or 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 take someone's word for it that you know that we we ha there's no there's no evidence to do that. We are going to figure out the problem and we're going to act appropriately. And in that action, we're going to take steps. And some of those steps we might be a little bit uncertain about, but we're willing to say once we take that step, if it was the wrong step. We're going to back up. We're going to hold ourselves accountable. And we'll take a different step. So I think it's just that proactivity that I would recommend everybody. But if I were to boil it down to anything. Focus on what you can control and don't worry about things you can't control. Um, that's huge. And that can be applicable in any aspect of life, I think. I love it. I love it. So one thing which I've noticed anyway, speaking to you, is that you are in tremendous physical shape. I can see the whoop on your wrist. So you're clearly not messing around with uh, your physical condition and your physical health. What would be some advice or some tips to build up the physical side and to really develop our bodies. Great question, and I know you know a lot of people thinking I'm a, a former Navy SEAL are going to think get in the gym and lift weights, which is something I do, but it's not something it's you know it's not something I would say do that. It's you know the the, the actual build muscle type thing is subjective for everybody. Um, I think when it comes to physicality, it's really important. I think to go back to the elements of who we are and our physiology. Okay, um, we are. You know, we our autonomic nervous system is broken up into two sections, sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? Sympathetic is our active kind of active systems. Parasympathetic is our rest and recover, rest and digest system, right? Um, during, um, during points of activity in our day, we need to be in sympathetic response, okay? Because that's the, and that, that could be as extreme as being in a gunfight as a Navy SEAL or as, 
um, as uh, you know, well, I won't say a name, but smaller as, hey, I'm, I have to give this presentation or have this, you know, you know, to this person or, or even have an engaging conversation. That's where both of us are in sympathetic response right now. Okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It's human. Um, what that does though, is, is anytime we're in, in sympathetic response, especially actually, I shouldn't say anytime when we're um, in sympathetic response and there's anxiety and stress attached to it, um, we're generating cortisol in our system because again, that's a necessary chemical that we need to take action. All right. It's also hard on the system. All right. Cortisol is hard on our system. It's uh, it, it shuts down things like the immune, uh, not so much immune system, but shuts down things like um, uh, hair growth, nail growth, a lot of those, those, those basic services that our, our system takes care of cortisol stalls or delays or slows, right? Immune system, it certainly in some cases slows as well. When we are in recovery mode, our parasympathetic, right? Um, we are, our body shift to create DHEA. DHEA is a rebuilding chemical. DHEA is the, is the kind of the foundational elements of testosterone, estrogen, estrogen, all these things. And our body creates that to basically rebuild our system, to repair some of the damage that the cortisol might've done. Um, we can more proactively take charge of our sympathetic and parasympathetic, parasympathetic systems based on the activities we choose every day, right? First of all, Bar none, good sleep is, is the number one thing to take care of our health, okay? Um, but other ways we can do that, when we are um, joyful, when we're at peace, you know, when we're happy, when we're laughing, we are actually shifting into, and I would say there's a, we're starting to get into this, some, some more in-depth um, physiology and neurology, so I want to make sure it's general. But, but even when we're kind of in a sympathetic response of joy and laughter, okay, we're still creating DHEA. You know, we're still, we're still on the healing side of that. So, so my advice in terms of health would be to make sure you're actively populating your, your, your life and your days with things that allow you to be happy, joyful, peaceful, right? Try to, you know, obviously eat right. I mean, garbage in, garbage out. That's a, <laughs> it's a truism, right? So, so, you know, uh, so eat right, get good sleep because that's true too. But, but, but try to, uh, try to do more things. Well, first of all, figure out what those things that create joy for you are. For some, it might be um, reading. For some, it might be, I, I like jogging in the woods. I like spending time with my family. It could be anything like that. Listening to music um, and do those things and, and, and proactively schedule those things in your day. So for some people, it's meditation. You know, some people love meditation because for them, it's that. Um, so, so that's, I think, from a very general elemental standpoint of health, very, very important to manage our physiology in a way that we're not um, allowing stress and anxiety to dominate our energy expenditure throughout a day. And we can do that more proactively than we think. Rich, I have absolutely loved, man, discussing this with you today. There's been so many great tips from leadership to psychology to neuroscience your own personal experience that you share. Um, I'm going to pop the link below for everybody. If anybody listening wants to pick up a copy of the attributes, then there will be a link in the description below. Um, man, today we've obviously been discussing your book, but I would love to know um, what books that you've read have impacted your life. I love all topics because I think for me, reading is one of the... Uh, the best ways to just accrue knowledge. Um, and I've, I've enjoyed it since I was a kid. Um, I, and I try to read a bunch of stuff. What I need to do more of is I need to read more fiction. You know, sometimes I, I've been guilty, especially if you asked me five years ago, I was a little bit of a snob when it came to fiction. I was like, well, I don't want to waste my time with fiction. I'm not going to learn anything there. 
Um, but fiction in, in, in doses is great as well. Now, again, some people use fiction exclusively, which is more escapism than it is, <laughs> you know, anything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a good fiction novel gets your brain thinking along lines that you otherwise wouldn't th thought of. And it also rests and relaxes you, uh, relaxes you. So I need to read more fiction. I do love uh, Nassim Tlaib's stuff, um, Anti-Fragile, Black Swan. I love uh, Harari's stuff, Sapiens. Um, I love, um, uh, I do love the, the occasional leadership book. Um, I love, you know, right now I'm reading a book uh, about uh, HRV breathing, heart rate variability breathing, which is, which is another kind of, and they talk about it with the whoop stuff, right? But, but it's, uh, it's another aspect of health and it's another way our, our heartbeats or actually the variability between our heartbeats can start to describe our, uh, our sympathetic and parasympathetic health. Right. And so, so, uh, that, that one, uh, Dr. Lee, who you know, I know mutual friends, his, his book eat to be disease. I'm also looking at that as well. So, uh, so I would encourage people to, first of all, read, um, because there's an activation that happens in the brain when you're actually reading words versus just watching it. Um, and then, um, f force yourself if you have to, I don't have to force myself often, but, but some people do to be introspective about what you read, you know, stop for a moment, think about it process it, ask yourself some questions about it, because that process is, is really the creative process to find. So that's what I would recommend. And, and I need to read more. I'm, I, I've just recently committed to trying to read 10 pages a day. Um, because if you add that up, that's, that's a, a, a bunch of books. <laughs> in so I'm going to try to do more. So my last question for you today, what makes a life worth living? For me, it's, uh, it's love, companionship, and taking care of those people um, that that you care for. Uh, and I think also for me, it's it's you know I think we as a human race are interestingly enough in this race. It's probably a race. It's more of a journey than it is a race. But but as we go down this this track uh, of our journey, I think it's important for us and certainly me to leave the track better for the folks that are coming behind me than it was, than, than I, than I experienced it. Um, and I think that's important. That would be, you know, when, when I'm able to do that in these small doses, whether it be for others through the book or whether it be for my kids or for my family, um, I feel, I feel good. You know, um, that for me would be the definition of, of well-being. Man, a beautiful, beautiful answer. And I completely agree. We're here. So let's make things better. Uh, where can these guys connect with you? Best place is theattributes.com. Just go to the website. You'll, there's a bunch of stuff there. You can get the book there. You can take the assessment. We have an assessment tool on the website where you can um, take the assessment for grit, mental acuity, and drive and figure out where you stand on each of these attributes. Quick caveat, it's basically a snapshot because it's very hard to assess someone's attributes by taking a test, right? It's more experiential. But we've gathered data from about 1,000 people worldwide. So when you get the results, it's really as you compare to others. Um, and it's a snapshot from which you can kind of do some extra self introspection. And we'll just put up some workbooks there that people can, can grab that will help them develop attributes if they're interested in developing attributes and then find me on Instagram, um, you know, rich Divini at rich Divini on Instagram, and then also, uh, LinkedIn as well. So any of those places. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Appreciate it.